please welcome this evening's moderator, Apple's Senior Vice President of Internet Software and Services, Eddie Q. So uh, I said this is a, a real honor for me. Um, there you go. So this is a real honor for me. I've been a, a huge, huge fan of Bruce for over 40 years. Um, there's no songs I've listened to more than Bruce songs. Um, when I want to get inspired, those are the songs I listen to. Uh, when I'm sad, they're the songs that make me happy. Sometimes when I listen to some songs, I can cry. Um, he means the world to me. I think he is simply the best. And I love Bruce Springsteen. And that's why I'm here today. And with that, Bruce Springsteen. Okay. All right. <laughs> so this is, this is great. Uh, you know, one of the great things about Bruce is even when you look at the book, and I read the book, and from the first sentence, you could tell that he wrote it. Um, it <laughs> That's always good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you look at the book, you, you, you're, you've been such a private person on your personal life. And... Uh, you shared so much in the book. Uh, what made you want to do that at this time? You know, you have to open up your life a little bit if you're gonna if you're gonna write the book. So, uh, uh, I, but I took my parameters. I said, well, I want to write about basically where the music comes from, what are the influences on my music, and that seemed to be a part of it. So uh, when I got to those sections, which were really kind of the toughest sections to write, because uh, you're often writing about your present, all the people that are in your life now, and you're writing about your personal life. It's not my favorite thing, but uh, I had a good sense of boundaries as to sort of what I wanted to do, you know, and basically I wanted to let people know, like I said, what were the influences on my music, where it came from, and, and that was part of it, so. Um, it's amazing. You, you, you look at the way he wrote it, it, it feels like poetry. It's, a, it's the same way as the songs, but there were four things that uh, I wanted to bring up that really resonated with me and I think in, in this time in this country uh, are very, very important. And one is the American dream. When I, when I read your book, I think about where you started, your humble beginnings and what you've been able to do. Um, what, are, what are the things and attributes that, you, that have made you live what is the American dream? Mm, desperation, a little mental insanity. Uh, <laughs> All those things are the fuel for the fire, really, at the end of the day, you know? And um, so you're in pursuit of... Uh, I, my project was always kind of an identity project, you know? I wrote songs to f figure out who I was, to figure out how to put some of the pieces that I felt my life was in back together, to figure out where I belonged. And to do that, you had to get into the idea of who you were as an American, what that meant, uh, what living here means. And, uh, you know, initially your motivation is you just want to be competent at something, you know. And uh, I was uh, telling the folks at the show that there was only one other thing I could do for four hours. <laughs> and unfortunately, it was by myself, so. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, you're just trying to get good at something and, and bring something to the ball game. I'm a, not much younger than you, but a little bit younger than you. And I can tell you just as a, a person who's a first generation American from my parents, it's, it makes a difference to see people, uh, what they can accomplish um, when you do what you've done. And uh, it, it impacted me. Uh, and I think that's why it's important for everyone uh, to know and, and read this. The second thing that I saw was the women in your life. Um, <laughs> Your, uh -oh. gra <laughs> your, your grandmother, your mother, your aunt, and, and Patty, can you, can you talk a little bit about how, how they impacted? And Just had a, you know, our family was really, it was matriarchal, you know. Uh, the men were kind of Irish and a little on the sullen side, or, uh, but the women were dynamic and explosive, you know. They're, the way they worked, what they brought to their jobs, they were all, all three of them, it was my mother and her two sisters, all three of them were the same. You know, they were just these little, these dynamos, you know, of, of, of activity and, and action. And with a certain sort of hopeless optimism that they carried with them their entire lives, you know. So they were very powerful. They were very, as far as the active part of my life. Uh, they were very, very powerful. And uh, my grandmother was very influential because she really raised me the first six years of my life. Um, we were, my father and I were basically raised by kind of the same woman, you know, my mother. There was some tension in the house, so my mother allowed her to call the shots. And I go into it in the book a little bit. She had a, a daughter who was killed in the gas station around the corner and so I came along and I was kind of the replacement child and I got all the uh, the benefits and the uh, and the curses of, of, of the, that particular role you know um, it's again a, another moment that I looked at as I said from a personal point of view of how women have impacted his life and impacted mine so it meant a lot um, the third thing um, which I think is a very serious issue um, that I'm glad came out in the book and I think can help a lot is mental illness. And uh, I think it's an area that um, we can do so much more. And, um, you know, talk a little bit about how that impacted you. And you know, I, I came from a, it was a group of people where there was, there was a lot of illness that ran in, my, in the Irish side of the family particularly, but the Italian side also. And it would just pick people off here and there, you know, my cousin, my aunt, uh, my grandmother at one time, then my, my father. So, but you just lived with it in those days. You didn't even recognize it for what it was. You just thought it was somewhat unusual behavior and, and uh, you accepted it because those were the people you loved. They were the people you cared for and who they were was who they were. So as a child, you didn't really, uh, it didn't register and then there was no, way that people understood about getting help or the psychopharmacology they didn't understand at that day at, at that time so it was uh it was just left to marinate you know we all sort of marinated in it and uh um i mean years later i got a lot of help but uh uh when i was a kid it was just a, this deep mystery it was just mysterious you know i'd never met anybody who spent any time in a doctor's office or 
an, an, an analysis or anything like that. So you were kind of left to fend for yourself. That for me is where my music came from. I think my music was the first thing that really kind of centered me. And it was very medicinal. It, it just was cathartic and uh, it, it, it really just, just brought you into the, it rooted you, it rooted you, which is what, what I was looking for. Um, the fourth thing um, is work ethic. And uh, I had the privilege of working with Steve Jobs for 20 years, and it reminded me a little bit of, of, uh, of Steve when I was reading the book at, at the, uh, the amount of time and detail that you spend on the things that you do. When you look at this book, it was a seven-year project. Um, when you think of Born to Run, the song, it's, you know, it took you six months. Can you talk a little bit about like the Born to Run album and, and give us some stories of, uh, of what it was like creating and, and the work that was required to do that. Yeah, that was pretty torturous. You know, it wasn't wasn't much fun. Um, it was just we didn't know how to make records. We didn't know how to get sounds. Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, uh, it took us a long time to just get to a studio where the equipment was working, and then we fell in with Mr. Jimmy Iovine, who's around here somewhere tonight. There he is. And he helped us solve a lot of our problems, may I say, by uh, uh, getting the record to sound great and to sound the way I heard it in my head. You know, Jimmy was really, was really good at that. You know, and, and of course, John got us over to Jimmy and over to the record plant, uh, John Landau. And so it was, uh, uh, but the record itself was a lot of, I worried over everything in those days. You know, I just, uh, I took a microscope to every part of our recording process and every every note that I was singing and I was young and very very insecure so I had to work on it I had to work on everything three times before I let it go you know I I had to I had to beat myself up over uh, over the whole project before I felt like okay there's nothing else I can do you know but uh uh it was it was a hard record to make it was a hard record but in the end, I listen to it now, and you forget all about the pain, you know, and just go, oh, that sounds good. It sounds the way I wanted it to sound, so. Well, Jimmy gave me a great story that I uh, really appreciated, again, for the work ethic and attention to detail. It was uh, one time he, he mentioned that uh, you wanted a certain rhythm, and uh, you kept playing the, the, these drums and doing it over and over and over again for hours and hours. I think uh, Jimmy says it was over 20 hours. He says he fell asleep at one point. And when he woke up, you were still doing the same thing. Uh, that was not uncommon, unfortunately. <laughs> it was very, it was a Sisyphean task, you know, the, our, our, our record making project. But uh, yeah, we were, we were relentless, but we were often just chasing our tails and beating the hell out of ourselves and taking a lot of time. But uh, Jimmy did well. He stayed awake most of the time. <laughs> uh, it's just—it's great to see that that uh, attention to detail. That's how you make great things. And uh, I, I was really interested in, in seeing that process and, and learning about it, which is great. Now I have a love for cars that, that people know about, and and uh, one of the great things that I see with you is you you put cars in the covers of your albums. You've uh, sang about cars. One of my favorite songs is. Racing in the Street. Uh, the book has a beautiful Corvette uh, yeah. on the cover. Uh, and then I read the book and I 
realize that you didn't drive much when you were young and didn't get a license. <laughs> and, uh, so what no, was that all about? <laughs> I didn't drive much at all. Well, it's an old story. Chuck Berry wasn't in high school when he wrote all those great songs. Brian Wilson didn't surf, and I didn't drive. Very much. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, it really, the, I, I tell a story in the book at how when I was young, we, there was these, in the summer, thunderstorms would occur. My grandparents were very old school and very superstitious, so my grandmother would run us up the street to my aunt's house. We had six houses on one block. And she would run me into the house, they'd pull the blinds down, they'd get the holy water out, they'd start sprinkling the holy water over all of us. And there was this incredible terror at, at, at thunder and lightning, you know. And uh, somebody mentioned to me that the safest place during a lightning storm was in a car. So by now I was terrified of lightning because of my, my, my grandparents. And so any time that it rained or thundered, I would scream to get in the car and have my, my parents drive me around till the storm ended in case we got struck. And uh, I ended up writing about cars for the rest of my life. So <laughs> I'm sure it had something to do with that, you know? <laughs> now your bandmates said you weren't very, a very good driver when you started. Is that, uh, was that an accurate? Yeah, or I was just a terrible driver for a very long time. I didn't even have a license. I drove without a license for, for a while because I, they needed me to. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I was just, just not good behind the wheel. That's all. Um, a great story that I, that I, I, I loved in the book and is um, sh really great to see was uh, Patty, when uh, talking about your kids, mentioned um, that if you wanted to have a, a better or a stronger relationship with your kids, you had to wake up earlier. Right. <laughs> so besides learning how to make pancakes, how did that? <laughs> how did that? Uh, well, I I, I, you know, I lived like a musician my whole life. That was year up till three, four. I, there were there were years when I would go to bed at eight a.m. in the morning and get up at seven, six or seven at night. So uh, I lived like this for a long time. So when we first had the kids, it was sort of like. It worked out okay because when they woke up at night, I'd be up and I'd take care of them at nighttime and then she would take care of them once the sun came up. But uh, uh, once they started to sleep through the night, it became a little unfair. So she said, gee, you gotta wait. If you don't wake up, you're gonna miss them in the morning. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be there. And so I forced myself up one day and I went downstairs and I learned how to make the pancakes and eggs and everything else. And uh, there was something that happened in the morning that didn't happen the rest of the day. You know, they needed you in a way that was unique. And also became this ritual that, that so much of family life is, you know. But it's, it's, there are these important, these small little rituals that, that guide the kids and, and root them at home. And I found out that if I was good for 45 minutes in the morning or an hour and a half, it really covered a lot of the rest of the day, you know. They, they really... Uh, you know, they just really felt your presence at that time, so. That's great. Um, you know, you've played all over the world, uh, tens of thousands of people, and yet you talk about the Super Bowl um, as this big thing. What, 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 what was that like? What made that so different? And uh, you started the book at that time, even. Right, right. Well, the Super Bowl was funny because 
you know, you're going to play in front of 150 million people. That's probably more people than you've played for in most of your rest of your career. And uh, the nice thing is it's a free gig. They don't pay you. <laughs> but nobody else gets, gets charged. So uh, you're doing this big free show for 12 minutes in the middle of the afternoon for everyone, everyone in the United States and the world. So that's, that's the upside of it. The downside of it is if you fuck up, it's going to be really bad. <laughs> really, really bad. You know, you don't want to fuck up at the Super Bowl if you can. You know, so there's this, there's this slight underlying terror because you also have the least control of any other. I mean, you come out on the field, you stand there, the field is empty. There's nothing there. There's no stage, there's no speakers. And then with about eight minutes to go, you see your fans running out onto the field with pieces of your stage. Uh, doesn't inspire that much confidence. And you know, there's a kid with his baseball hat on backwards and his shorts carrying the cable that's gonna make the difference whether you get hurt at home or not. So, but amazingly, they get it all put, they get it all put together and it works. But uh, Rocky, the higher you are, on the tightrope, the more thrilling it is, but also the further you have to fall. So you're, you're way up on the tightrope on, on that day. It was fun, we enjoyed it at the end of the day. And I did, I wrote an essay that I put on the website that kind of started me writing the book, so it was well, a good time. Well, one of the amazing things is uh, if you love Bruce concerts as much as I do, you don't know what to expect. Um, and uh, you, you go to the concert and, I've been lucky sometimes to even have the set lists that you've written beforehand, but you change it even as the concert's going. Um, what is it that, that, what are you feeling? What's the sense or what's, what's going on that causes you to sort of change what's, what's happening? Uh, people pay, you know, they don't really pay to hear their favorite songs. They pay for you to be as present and as alive as you can be on that particular evening because that's, that's what makes the audience come to life. So uh, it's not about any particular piece of music or any particular song. It's just how, how truly present you can be. So I go out in search, of, in, search of that, in search of that particular, I go out to lose myself in the music because once you're lost in the music, you're completely there. You know, you really, you're inhabiting everything you're singing and the night just takes off, you know. So, uh, the reason we change the set list is the set list can when it becomes confining. If it becomes confining, I throw it out, you know. So we'll get we'll get into uh, uh, we may sometimes I'll change it for the very first song, you know. If we get out there and I just feel something else in the air, but uh, to have a band that has the ability to be that flexible is is very important. So I can turn to them. Yeah, let's hear for these people. So uh, that's very important to have a band that can follow you, and I can Max can read my lips, and the other guys can pick up, and and we can change on the on on a dime. So it's it's and it just makes the night more exciting. Also, speaking of the band, um, one of the most amazing things that I've never seen any other performer or any concert do is you go to the the concert, you've got your set list, and in the middle of it, you've got people with posters and yelling songs, and, and you go off and do a song that's not yours. Um, how does the band, and, and how do you do that? 
well, everybody has years and years of bar band experience, so uh, we all have this common well of um, of just musical history that we've all grown up with, and so it's a common language. There's not a whole lot we can get thrown by. Uh, there's also a little man under the stage with a teleprompter that can find the lyrics to, to anything we want to play in about 30 seconds. It's good for you, but what about the band? It is. <laughs> so and the, so the, and the band generally has a feel, knows the music, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's just a trick, you know, but it's, 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 once again, it's about the communication between the band members and myself and, and how we've grown up, you know. It's, 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 it's kind of lovely to share, share all that with the guys. As a fan, I can tell you that it's really special and means a lot. It's just amazing because it shows the love that you guys have for music. Yeah, and the people and get that. to call some of the shots during the night, so that's, that's fun. Absolutely. Now, in the book, you talk about books and, and authors and, that have impacted you and, and that you've read. And uh, speaking particularly about Ron, the Vietnam vet from Born on the Fourth of July, how, how did you meet him and, and how has that... What, what has that done for you? Uh, I was traveling through Arizona. I stopped at a little drugstore and they had the paperback copy of Born on the Fourth of July. And I went to a place called the Sunset Marquee, which is a famous sort of uh, rock stars hangout motel in, in Los Angeles, where we stayed for many, many years. And there was a guy in a wheelchair by the pool. And uh, it's kind of the small world theory uh, where he, we got talking after a day or so, and he said, hey, I'm Ron Kovic, and I wrote one on the 4th of July. So uh, we just started to get together, and he took me to the vet center, and, and I met a lot of the Vietnam veterans from uh, California, and one thing led to another, and uh, I got involved with them on, on uh, putting on some concerts and some things, you know. But Ron, that's, a, that's an incredible book. It's, it's a, just a beautiful book of coming home. I loved it. That's why I brought it up. It's, uh, yeah, it's what beautiful. you guys did. Um, one of the things, I've been to a lot of concerts and been to see you in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, but in talking to John Landau, he always used to tell me, and Barbara, you, you have to go see Bruce in Europe and, and see uh, what the fans are like around the world to, to kind of experience. And, when you go, it's amazing to see 60, 70, 80,000 people, Italians uh, in Spain and Sweden, um, singing every song, every word. Um, the, this is in English about America. How, how did that, how do you think that came about? What, what's, what's resonated so well? Well, in the early 80s, we had a uh, an agent who said you should go to Europe because there's an audience there if you go and win it. You know, they love rock and roll. So uh, we'd been one other time in the mid-70s for four shows. We're, it was very scary. We were kids who'd never been out of New Jersey. We were 25 years old. We couldn't find a cheeseburger anyplace. <laughs> Europe was a lot more European. In 1980, than it is now. It was really very European. And uh, we were not very European. So, uh, uh, you know, we went over there. We had uh, some difficult performances. Uh, went and saw a sex show in Stockholm. 
That scared the hell out of all of us. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then we came back home. And uh, so we didn't go again for about five more years. Um, but when we did go, the audience really responded. I mean, it's, in a, it's an incredible audience overseas. They, considering that most of it is second language at best, at, at best, uh, the level of response and the level of passion for music is amazing over there. And they're very interested in America and what it's about. And uh, uh, it's a deep audience, too. It's an audience there. They're interested in exactly what you're singing about and what you're saying. Uh, uh, it's been one of the great, great pleasures of our life going over and playing over there. So, uh, but it's 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 incredible. I'd say probably two thirds of our audience is there now. You know, it's uh, if you ever have an opportunity uh, to schedule a vacation while you can catch a Bruce concert, I, I highly encourage it. It's amazing to to see a number of people doing that. Uh, I've just never seen anything like it. Uh, around well, the world. I gotta say that the audiences we just had at MetLife and and, yeah. <laughs> and in uh, Philadelphia and Boston, yeah, they were incredible. We had incredible audience here here just a couple of weeks ago that were right up there with the best in the world. Yeah. You know, that's great. Um, you know, a question I think a lot of people have wondered over the years is. Um, and I've wondered, um, have you ever thought about starring in a movie? Uh, it's too late now, man. I'm, it'll be somebody's dad or grandpa, maybe. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm waiting for that part to come along. Outside of that, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think you would be great at it. I think a lot of fans would love to, to see you. Uh, so uh, uh, I highly encourage it. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned cheeseburgers, so one of the things in the book is you're a cheeseburger connoisseur. So, what are your uh, favorite places ar around the world that you uh, that you love cheeseburgers? <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm less than I used to be. You know, I was I, I, for a long time I was a junk food addict, but uh, but I, I've since learned to eat other things. But uh, best cheeseburger? I couldn't tell you. There's some good places along the Jersey Shore. Max's Hot Dogs. Windmill, they make, they, make they, they do it well, Jersey Shore style, so. So when you think about rock and roll today, um, where do you think it is and, and who do you think are the, the great sort of uh, singers or, or rockers that you're seeing coming up today that are? Gosh, I'm trying to think of what I like. Uh, Green Day, they make great records and they, they really, you know, they're always thoughtful and, and intense, and, and they have a band that plays great together. You know, they play great together. Um, my old friends from U2 are still doing just fine. <laughs> you know, they, are, they, they consistently sound great and, and are creative. Um, I have an iPod full of things that, I, that, I, that can't come to mind at the moment, but uh, there's a lot of good music out there, a lot, a lot of very good music of all kinds. You know. Are there other other genres that you're uh, listening to and uh, that you that you've uh, you think are are great that you've been exposed to recently or new artists? Um, I like Kendrick Lamar a lot. He's intense and he's a great rapper, very intense. Um, I like Kanye West. I think Kanye West makes great records. You know, I love his records. 
You know, those are those are just very creative, amazing records. Um, um, let me think who else. That, that's it for now. <laughs> <laughs> those are great. So um, a lot of friends and women in the audience asked me to ask you this. So it's um, you know, you look incredible. Um, you're. <laughs> your, your stamina, your, your, you know, talking about the Meadowlands and, and, and what he's done in the last couple of weeks, the longest concerts ever, um, you know, over four hours. Uh, what's the secret? Obviously, I could use a little bit of it, and so. <laughs> There's not much of a secret to it, you know. You, you, I don't intend to play for four hours, and if it was up to me, I would prefer not to, you know. But uh, we kind of come out, and we know we're going to go three. That's how it starts, you know? <laughs> so then you go 315 for a little while. Then you go in 320 or 330. And then suddenly the night just evolves into, it organically grows into the length that it, it's, it's a bit self-determining, you know, it determines itself. Uh, I wait until I feel like we've delivered the whole picture to you you know we're trying we're coming out we're coming out there to do something something epic you know it's supposed to be uh, long it should be hard to a certain point and and it's what we like to deliver to the audience you know we want, we want you to go home having had a, a big experience having had something that you know you're going to point back to and say yeah but man you know the, the time they played it here or there, or, you know, we're trying to make a memory for you, and uh, and and just there's just nights where that's where it goes, you know. But we've always played a long time, you know, ever since we were very young, because we started playing in clubs where you played five sets a night. That's five hours. You played five 15-minute sets a night, so that was very very common. It was when we get, it was what was hard was when we go out on tour with people where we played 30 minutes. You know, you played four songs and you were you were done. You were off stage. That was actually a bit difficult because you didn't feel like you could deliver your best. But the shows are just, I'm trying to find that place where it takes off. If it takes off for me, I know it does for you. And I search for that place every night. It comes at different moments in the show. Uh, and... Uh, you know that's 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 really just the way that the show developed. It's not it's not something that I'm not trying to break my record every night. I'd prefer not to, like I say. You know the the band doesn't complain too much. You know so. <laughs> um, you know there's some beautiful moments in the book about Clarence um, that I really loved, uh, and, and you talked. <laughs> you, you talked about you know the first time you, you realized what he felt like at times playing in different types of crowds. Oh, yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about that? And well, we played in the Ivory Coast. We played this huge stadium. It was all black faces. And we came out and said, gee, is, is this going to work? We got five or six white New Jersey guys, one black guy. We're kind of playing these four on the floor, leaden rhythms. Uh, uh, you know, it's a crowd used to Afrobeat and all that beautiful swinging, uh, swinging music. So we came out, counted into 
born in the USA, not wanting to take any chances. You know, <laughs> let's see what happens when we detonate the nuclear bomb. This was 1988, so. Uh, and everybody just kind of stood there with their mouths open for about 60 seconds. I thought it was over and then it just exploded and every, everybody climbed on board. It was one of, the great, one of the great little shows of our lives, but it, it gave me a sense of what C's felt, you know. C was, at one point the E Street Band was three black guys and three white guys. And uh, gave us a tremendous mix of influences and uh, it was it was it was one of the band was a little more of a jazz soul band actually, you know a little more of a rock and soul band, and uh, so Davy and Boone, who are our keyboards and piano player, left and it it, it uh, had an effect on Clarence and and uh, it came up from time to time you know but uh, uh, it was just part of being in the band. Um, another great. Um story that I think uh, was probably the most um, poignant part of the book for me and uh, very touching in, in that standpoint. I think a, a great message to people. You talk about how you met your dad later in life after he had moved out to California and you had a conversation with him um, where you sort of reconciled a little bit uh, some of the issues and, and what he said to you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And, uh, it's a funny moment. Uh, he just came and visited me before I had. We were, I was on the cusp of being a father myself. So he drove down from San Francisco and he surprised me in the morning. And he came in and we, you know, my father was somebody who could come in and we could sit down and that was that. <laughs> you know, there would be no conversation. You know, and so we. You know, I tried making small talk as best as I could, and uh, he said, well, you know, he didn't want me to mis make the same mistakes that he made, I think. And he actually came down to, in his own way, tell me so. And uh, by saying, yeah, yeah, it was a little rough. It was a little rough on you when you were young. And it was, it was a simple conversation. I, I, I recount it much better in the book, you know, but uh, uh, it was a little recognition of just the truth of our lives together and and it was kind of all I needed and uh, uh, I always kept it in the back of my mind rethink when I was uh, when my own kids came along you know um, I feel a little funny talking about it here because it was a you know it's, it's better better read I think but anyway I agree I, I just uh the thing that it reminded me of is, is, is um, I think everyone that reads it and how important it is to, to tell the people you love, you love them and, and, and talk about it, which I think was, was great. Uh, uh, that's, that's kind of yeah. the message and, and yeah. that's great, a great message to give. Yeah, I, I was lucky, you know. I mean, most people, you know, they have a troubled childhood with your parents or with your, your, your father or mother and uh, it doesn't, it never gets right again, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't get healed, it doesn't get addressed. And I was lucky in that as my father grew older and as we grew older together that uh, those things found their, we found a way to sort of put them in context and, and had a good relationship at the end of his life. So you spent seven years writing the book. Um... Probably two years, really. I mean, I spent seven years with the book around 
And uh, I'd write a little bit and I'd put it away for a year and we'd go on the road and sometimes I'd put it away for longer than that. So I think the entire time it probably took, if I put it end to end, might be a couple of years. But I, I, I took all that time because I'd go back and reread it and see if it was worth continuing, you know. So, uh, uh, but it took a while. It took a little while. You didn't have, you weren't, you didn't have a diary or things in the past of so this. You had to remember and... Re oh, yeah, that's why I wrote it now before I forgot every fucking thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm at that age where it's like you're forgetting things already, so. Well, you're, you're, it's not surprising given you're a prolific writer of songs that you could do it with, with a book, but I can tell you just personally, it's great to see the, the real Bruce story from Bruce as opposed to having it written by somebody else or uh, I think that's yeah, a great that's thing. Nice. Thank you. And the book, you know, the, the book was different. It was different to write. You're writing prose, it's very different than songwriting. You got to find the music that's uh, in the in the words themselves. You know, you got to find rhythm. You got to create rhythm. You got to create momentum. Uh, the book has to move itself along a certain way. There's, there's there's certain things that are in common with songwriting, but it's it's a, it's a bit of another job also. So. Part of the early, in the early parts, I was just trying to write to see if I could. You know, could I write something that would hold people's interest over a period of so many pages, you know, so. I, I love the way you did it in, uh, in, in the short story versions of it. Uh, I think it, it, it allowed you to, to present it almost like a song. Yeah, that was just what happened, you know. I didn't, I didn't have a plan when I started. I didn't have a plan. I wrote a little bit. Then I had a little subchapter. Then I wrote a little bit more, and I had a little subchapter. You know, so uh, that was just the way that it it asked to be written, really. So, like you, I, I was raised Catholic, okay. um, and uh, <laughs> you talk a lot about that in the book. And and spiritually, how do you think um, you know those things have have impacted your music and your life? And well, I had the sort of the worst of the Catholic school experience. You know, it was. Uh, it was the 50s, there were all the nuns and the, and the priests. I, plus I lived, we lived virtually at the church. There was our house, there was a little grassy field, then there was the church, the convent, priest's rectory, the Catholic grammar school, and it was all on top of us and we were on top of it. So we lived just in the bosom of the Catholic church my whole childhood. and. Uh, it gave them incredible influence over, over our thoughts and our feelings. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was instilled by fear in those days, which was very effective. And uh, so I made it for eight years, and after that I couldn't take any more. By the sixth grade I was already really rejecting it and getting in a certain amount of trouble. But uh, it, seemed, it sort of ruined the religion for me in that... Uh, uh, I could never go back with an open mind and really, uh, and really embrace it again. But it, it entered into my writing very deeply, and it, it stayed there since I started. You know, my songs are filled with Catholic imagery, filled with Christian imagery. Uh, they deal with a lot of morality and and different and questions about uh, living. So it, it was very very connected to the Catholic Church and and my music has gained a lot of its power from that from that imagery you know so uh, and, I, and I still use it quite regularly you know it was a very 
a very good language to write in. Not quite as good to live in, but it was a good language to write in. Uh, I, I wasn't a very good altar boy. I thought I was until I heard your My story. terrible stories. <laughs> and then I realized I wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mine were, I was a disaster, you know. I was talking about this the other night on Colbert. It was just, uh, I was just terrible at it, you know. I didn't, you had to have a tremendous discipline. You had to learn all of the Latin. That was, there was a lot of Latin to learn. And you had to learn all of it. You had to have it, you know, com com be able to completely recollect it. Then you had to remember all of the stations of the mass and where he was supposed to be. And I really, I wasn't that into it to learn all those things. You know, I was into it to get out of school a little bit and, and satisfy my mother. And, and so I lasted for one mass, and that was it. I, 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 never, I never did it again. Um, well, one last question, and um, we'll wrap this up. Um, I, I hear you have a, a new album possibly coming out. Uh, any anything? Uh, uh, I don't want to talk too much about it. It's uh, <laughs> it's been done for a while, you know, and it, it's pretty good. I hope it's good. It's kind of a solo record, and uh, uh, maybe we'll get it out this year sometime if we're, if we're if we're lucky. Yay! Get the band on Apple Music. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, Look, it, it's this has been um, a dream come true for me. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Personally, you have, uh, for the last 40 years, uh, been a big part of my life. And, and one of the great things that you've done is you you keep creating, you keep doing things um, every year. And, and so you continue to be a big part of my life. I've made my kids. I took them to Bruce concerts since they were, you know, six, seven years old. That's so they're great. Bruce fans. That's great. <laughs> uh, and, and this has just been a thrill for me. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs>